know, she kind of helped him up and, and he gave me a big hug and, um, and as we said goodbye and then he turned to me and he said, you know what, life is about love. It's about loving the people that we can, telling them that we love them. It's about being kind and it's about being grateful for everything we have in this world. No matter whatever it is that we've been given, it's about being grateful for. when you find yourself at a crossroads. Your whole world suddenly needs to be changed and you don't know how. Sue Hollis was sure the answers were on the road. A lifelong rider on her first big adventure trip by motorcycle. A quest for direction. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles that's been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can also sign up for their e-rider newsletter. It's free and I highly recommend it. That's www.maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as their top pick in a compressor shakedown. Also, Best Rest is a North American distributor for Google Tech filters, the filters that should be on your bike. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hedstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schlag. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Russ. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeVell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any bag into motorcycle luggage with this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding, which has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Sue Hollis has been riding motorcycles since she was a young teen, sort of a, an alter ego really from her day job as the CEO of her own large company, a company that she built from the ground up with her partner and spent the better part of the past two decades building. From the outside, Sue had an enviable life with corporate and financial success. You could say she had all her ducks in a row. That was until one day she reached a point where she just couldn't do it anymore. The business and her lifestyle were causing her a lot of mental and health-related stress, and everything she worked for, everything she thought defined her, was no longer what she wanted. 
She quit her business and decided what she needed to do was to go on a solo motorcycle trip to see if that journey would reveal who she really was. I'm Sue Hollis. I'm from Sydney, Australia, and also from Whistler, Canada, and I'm an adventurepreneur. Sue, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Yeah, thank you, Jim. It's great to be here. Well, you're going to have to define that because uh, an <laughs> adventurepreneur, thats I think that's a first for me, I, the first of me hearing that. I know, it's a great word, isn't it? Um, to me, an adventurepreneur is someone who's created a lifestyle around their passion for adventure. So I've gone the traditional route of, of kind of, you know, corporate roles and being um, an entrepreneur. And I've left those behind to kind of create an environment that enables me to do different roles, different jobs, um, but still enables me to always kind of step back into my passion for adventure and for adrenaline and for risk taking. So that's probably the best definition I can give you. Well, entrepreneur, we usually think of making money, you know, as a business venture. Is, is that what this is? Um, I still do. Um, I've still, I have a, a bunch of different businesses now. I, I speak, I write, uh, I coach, I guide, but I've actually set up all of those businesses so that it's, they still enable me to live a life of adventure. So for example, if I'm coaching, I, it, I will be in, a, in an environment where I can potentially be still out on a ride for 10, 15, 20 days at a time, um, but then be somewhere in the afternoon so that I can kind of come back in and coach for the rest of the afternoon, the rest of the evening. So it's about actually creating a lifestyle um, that still really, really kind of lets me live my passions and and still gives me enough money to do that as well. So the place I want to start is um, you came to a place or a point in your life where you made a huge change. And I, I think that you were getting ready to go for a jog, or at least that was the sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. Can you tell that story? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess I'd spent my whole life searching or, or looking to achieve what I guess we would class as the traditional measures of success. So what I class as head success. So, you know, the big career, the you know financial stability, the big house, lots of toys um, and kind of a, a crazy wild lifestyle. So, so for years I had spent my whole life thinking that if I achieved all of those things, then that would make me happy, um, which is kind of what we're, we're taught, I guess, from where the time that we're really small, go to college, go to university, get a good job. Um, and slowly, slowly in the back of my mind, I started to realize that that wasn't making me happy. And that's quite a terrifying position to be in, you know, when you've spent your whole life kind of chasing all of those things and you suddenly have them. Um, and to the outside world, you know, I'd certainly had um, achieved a lot of external success. But on the inside, I just knew that there was something more in this world. I, I really felt that there was something more that I was meant to be doing with my life. It wasn't just about you know, buying the next motorbike, although that always helps, um, or the next pair of shoes. But I just kind of felt there was something more important that I was meant to be doing in my life. Um, and, you know, you kind of, you can fool others for quite some time, but you really struggle to kind of fool yourself. And, and I guess I reached a point where eventually that voice in my head that kept saying, is this, is this all there is? Is this what you're supposed to be doing? Um, reached a kind of shouting point and and I guess some would call it a spiritual awakening. Um, I would probably call it a mini breakdown. 
Um, I had kind of reached a point where I was starting to get really sick. I was struggling at work. I, I had my own company. I wasn't making good decisions. Um, I was starting to have a few kind of relationship issues. And so things were starting to compound to bring me to the point where one morning I went to go out for a run and, you know, as a, as a typical A-type performer, um, you know, I was up at 4.30 to be, you know, marathon training. And so I got up 4.30 to go for a run and for the first time ever just couldn't get out of bed. And I dragged myself to the bathroom and, and what I saw in the mirror absolutely terrified me. Um, my, mind you, at 4.30 in the morning, most of us are terrified by what we look at. Um, so that really, I, should, I shouldn't have been a stranger to that one. Um, and, um, and Jimmy, you probably won't understand this, but for any of you female um, listeners, I tried to put on a Lululemon um, running shirt and most of the, they're so complicated. You actually need a degree in origami to get these damn things on. And I struggled with it and had arms going in all the wrong directions and couldn't get this damn thing on. And but that was literally the straw that broke the camel's back, and I just kind of sunk to the floor. And and just in tears, I realised that the kind of the life that I'd created was not serving me any longer. And I had no idea what to do. And and literally, I mean, it's just like a Hollywood movie, but it's exactly what happened. In my head came a bunch of really clear words, and it was just quit. Enough now, just quit. And I realized that was the point in my life that I had to kind of quit the life that I was living and uh, go in search for the life that I was supposed to live. So that was kind of the crunch point. So you were experiencing achievement to the highest degree, but not fulfillment. Ah, beautifully, beautifully put. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of look at it the way that I can describe it now looking back um, and on reflection is that I'd achieved head success, so the big job, etc., but not heart success. So I'd compromised so much of myself in order to, to achieve the head success, but, you know, I really I really didn't know who I was or who I was supposed to be in this world, but that's exactly what it was. It was, you know, it, I had not managed to find fulfillment. You're a passionate uh, motorcyclist. Where did motorcycling come into your, fa- your, your uh, life? I was going to say your family, but I'm not sure that your family is riders, but where did motorcycling come into your life? Well, it did actually come in through my family. You, I, um, I had a very strict but very loving mother. I mean, she was very clear that no motorbike would enter the threshold of the house. However, she did kind of give way to my, my brother who had to travel a long way to work and without public transport. And so she, in a, you know, eventually she gave in and let him buy a, a motorbike. You know, it was a Honda XL250. And um, I fell in love with this thing the minute I saw it. So, but but obviously, you know, the bike for me was was absolutely forbidden. So I used to I used to wait until Sunday mornings because I knew that he would be have a big night out on Saturday, um, and wouldn't hear the garage door. And I used to kind of roll this thing out at you know God knows when on a Sunday morning, and ride around the neighbourhood and, and and taught myself to ride when I was about sixteen. Um, <laughs> wait, and, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, you, you learned to ride by stealing your brother's motorcycle. <laughs> Doesn't everybody? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think so, no. I, maybe that's in, <laughs> in your family, but <laughs> that's really good. And your brother oh. doesn't catch on to this while you're doing it. No, he has no idea. And it was a kickstart. It was a whole thing. So I used to actually kind of have to wheel it down the driveway really, really quietly. Fortunately, it's a very secluded driveway. So once I kind of got it out of the garage, no one could see. Um and I used to ride this thing, you know, for a couple of hours every Sunday morning and, you know, trying to kickstart it, taught myself to kickstart the whole thing until I could get the handle on it. And um, 
and then I obviously, I, you know, I, I told him eventually. Um, and so he was in on it and, and I used his bike to go for my license. And uh, my mother was very, very clear. If you bought it, you know, if I bought a motorbike into the house, the bike could stay, but I would have to go. So um, I bought a bike. Um, it was a, a Yamaha, um, uh, a blue stroke. And, um, and I kept it at a friend's place for a couple of years. And you know what? And I used to kind of, you know, leave it at my friend's place. You know, he was only a block or so away, leave it at his place, walk back in. And I swear to God, it was only about 12 months ago, my mum mentioned it for the first time. She said something about my first bike. And I said to her, what are you talking about? She said, do you think? I didn't know. <laughs> so a word to the wise out there, mums always know. <laughs> you always get caught. So, you always get caught. <laughs> So, um, so that was the start of my ride. And, and the minute, the minute I sat on this bike, it was just love at first sight. So, um, so I kind of, I had the Yamaha for a little while, not too long. And then, um, and that was the last of my Japanese bikes. And, you know, from then on went to European bikes. And then with my brother, um, when I was about 17, 18, we bought a, a really crapped out old bike and, and we started to race together. So I've had kind of a, a you know, I've been riding and, and badly racing, I guess, since I was kind of 16, 17. So the only time that I stopped in my life is my husband, who who wasn't a rider at the time. When my boys were born, I have two boys that are now 21, 23. Um, but when my boys were born, he actually came to me and, and said, look, you know, here's the thing. I get this is so important to you, but I think it's really important that the boys have a mother. So um, kind of hard to argue with that logic. So we had an agreement that um, that the minute they turned 12, um, I would be able to, you know, go back and ride. And, um, and I think he thought that I would just forget, but you never forget. Um, and the day my youngest turned 12 was straight back out and picked up a new 848 Ducati. So, um, so yeah, it's kind of, it's been in the blood as it is with all of us. Once it's there, you can't get rid of it. Are you still racing now? Um, very badly. Yeah, very, very badly. <laughs> What's very um, badly racing? Oh, you know, it's um, so I have in in um, in Canada. I mean, I'm very fortunate, and I and I can hear myself saying this and, and understand how bad it sounds. But I have a BMW S1000RR um, here in Canada, and I have a Ducati 959 in Australia. Um, and I try and get both of them on the track. Um, and though in kind of in 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 Canada, it's not that easy. So you know, so I've kind of taken it to you know to Vegas, and I've been fortunate enough to go to Laguna Seca, and you know and willows so i've i've been able to kind of you know do a little bit here but you know to be honest i mean i've just found that the older i get you know my risk profile has changed um nowhere near as fast i depend a lot more on technology so i need everything that bike can give me (laughs) um but you know what i love it you know i just i just love it i love that i love the feeling you know when you're kind of sitting on the grid and you know, and knowing that I'm kind of be, you know, still going to be relatively slow compared to all these young guys that have, you know, no mortgage and no insurance concerns and, and certainly no children to, you know, to kind of think about. But, you know, I just, I love it. I, I love the complete absorption that it takes is you can do nothing or think of nothing while you're on that bike. Um, so, yeah, old and slow, but but still loving it. Love it. Well, other than your, your first bike, and I guess your brother's XL250, you're, you're, you're riding sort of speed bikes. You're a speed demon. Yeah, you know what? Once it's in your blood, again, it's just it's just impossible to, to you know, to get it out of you. Um, I just love that raw power. I love that energy. And, and I love actually having the difference between the, the two bikes. I mean, 
people often say to me, you know, would you prefer the the Ducati or the BMW? And it's really, really hard because, I mean, the Ducati, uh, the the Beamer is such a superb bike. I mean, the technology. I mean, and it's it's beautiful. But the Ducati is such a work of art, um, and I and it's and I try and describe it to people, saying, if I take a bad line on the Beamer, it says to me, okay, interesting line. Let me help you with that. Um, but you take a bad line on the Duke, and it goes, interesting line. You're going to die. So you know that's probably the <laughs> difference between the two because they are just you know one's one's raw brute force. And the other is incredible technology, um, but I love them both, and and you know I I am really fortunate to have the opportunity to be able to switch between the two of them. That's interesting you say that because in the news I don't know if you've seen it of course, but um, BMW has unveiled this uh, self-riding motorcycle. I know I saw it. It's crazy. Well, they're saying some of that technology is going to make its way into the motorcycles. You should be happy to hear that because oh there'll be more things in there that'll do for you. Well, I'll take everything I can get. You know, when you get to my age, I really depend on technology to keep me moving faster. So, yeah, I saw that. Um, I was just, I was mesmerized by it. And what I, I, you've obviously seen the clip, but where I was just mesmerized by how it stops, it just stops in the side standles like it comes yeah. down. Yeah, Amazing. It's pretty incredible. I'll, I'll take all that technology. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> we were talking about um, the fact that you got to the point where you decided you needed to change your life. Let's talk about your life before that to begin with. Sure. Um, you built, uh, well, you started out working for airlines. I did. Yeah. So I was, um, I guess, kind of a, a corporate player for airlines for, you know, for over 20 years, kind of in, in pretty senior roles for both British Airways and Qantas um, in Australia, in the US and um, in the UK. Um, so I'd had about 20 years of, you know, being in a serious corporate environment. And I was really driven by by promotion and, you know, the the need to kind of keep you know, rising up through the corporate ladder. But I slowly started to become a little disillusioned with it. And and um, for someone that was on a serious career trajectory, it was quite a shock to my system, I, I guess, to realise that my values were becoming more important than the next promotion. Um, and I was struggling in an environment, in a big corporate environment where, you know, people talk about values, but, you know, and they're plastered on bathroom walls and they're, you know, they're in every canteen, but the company wasn't living it. And, um, and I guess I kind of, you know, I, I'm big on crunch moments, um, came to a, a crunch moment in my life where I suddenly realized I, I, this wasn't who I wanted to be anymore. I, I wanted to create something that was value-led, a business that was value-led, that did amazing things for its customers and even more things for the people that work for it. So I took a bit of a leap of faith and um, started a, a company with a business partner um, who was also working with me at Qantas. Um, and so we, we started this company and, um, and I was really fortunate. I was, I'm the major breadwinner in our family and, and my boys were very little at the time. They were, you know, three and four, five. Um, and I have an understanding husband who, who said, and I said to him, look, you know, we could lose everything with this. You know, I'm earning big salary right now. The boys are We'll certainly be going to private school. We'll be able to live the life that we've always wanted to live. But this, I, that's not being true to myself. And if I'm true to myself, you know, you need to understand that we could lose everything here. And he was really good. You know, he, he basically said to me, I don't care if the boys eat, you know, boys and I eat hamburger for the rest of our lives. But if that's what it takes for you to follow your dreams, then let's do it. Um, so and I think, you know, I'm incredibly fortunate that I had that level of support. 
But we started this company, um, had quite a few rocky years where, frankly, it could have gone either way. Um, but slowly we managed to kind of claw our way um, out of the bank, out of the bank um, reception area and um, and build a, a really successful business that's been running for the past 18 years. So, um, so yeah, so that was kind of my step out of from corporate into the wild worlds of entrepreneur land, I guess. So from an outsider's perspective, I mean, I just see a 20 year cycle here. You had, you had 20 years in airlines <laughs> and you had 20 years in your own business. So my next question, of course, maybe I'll leave that to the end. What are you going to do in the next 20 years? Of course, oh, you don't want to plan this. You're on to me. You know, I've got a very short attention and a very, you know, and, and you know, and I think it, and it starts to come in about in 10 year cycles. So within 10 years, and it, then it takes me another 10 years to kind of, you know, get up and move on. But yeah, uh, but I think life is cycles. And I, I think, I think it's important that we, you know, that we kind of look at, make sure that we keep looking at our lives and, and keep saying, okay, is this, is it giving me what I want? And if it's, and that's a really tough question to ask yourself, am I happy? Is this giving me what I want? Because often, if the answer is no, it means you've got to do something about it. And, and you know, action is a terrifying thing. But but I think it is really important to keep, you know, to keep checking back in with ourselves. And, you know, if it's not, then to change the, the trajectory of, of what we're doing. And we only have one life, despite what we may think um, yeah. in our minds. I think often we live our lives thinking that we're going to be here forever. We talk about death as if it's an abstract concept that we will never have any experience with. And in fact, we just have this one life. And, and boy, to stay doing you know, the same thing for your entire life is not for everyone. It may be for some, but it's not for everyone. Yeah, look, and I think... I think I'm I'm in grave danger, and I, and I certainly it's something that I've learned over the years, particularly leading large groups of people, is that often as a leader I'm kind of out the front going, "This is great, we've all got to be doing this," and and I'm so excited, and and then I turn around and my people are nowhere behind me, I've left them completely in the dust, and I think your point is incredibly valid because I think it is really really important to recognise that there will be people that you know that that derive incredible joy from what they're doing and, and what they're doing for someone like me may not be classed as, you know, adventurous or passionate or whatever, but they're really kind of, you know, that, you know, so long as they're kind of stretching their own boundaries, they're happy with what they're doing. But, but I think, you know, we have to keep sense checking in because you, you're so right. We have one life and, and I kind of work on the philosophy that life's too short just to wear a toque, um, you know, try on lots of different hats, you know, be lots of different things, be lots of different roles. And, and, you know, I kind of, for me, that's how I gauge success is, you know, how is the, is the roles that I can call, call myself on. So, you know, entrepreneur, a speaker, a guide, a coach, you know, for me, the more, the better. Um, but that is not necessarily for everyone, but it's kind of finding the balance for what's right for you. Mm. And it's interesting to see the extremes too, because then it gives you an idea of what can be done when you see someone like yourself who, do, who goes and does things to the extreme. And I think that's that's really our attraction to all of this sort of thing. Um, you know, we often interview people who sell everything and hit the road. That's not for everyone. And that's probably not no. for most listeners. They're, they're not interested in doing that. But it's interesting to hear what can be done and what people do experience. And then you look at it and you think, okay, maybe I want to tackle this to some degree. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it is really interesting. When I was on my trip, um, when I was on my bike, people would often say to me, wow, you're inspirational. Um, uh, you know, and just as an aside, I mean, you know, it's curing cancer is inspirational. Sitting on your butt for three months is not inspirational. But, but the conversation then would be fabulous because you 
you know, because to me, inspiration without action is of no value. You know, if we're inspired by people, fabulous, but do something with that, then the inspiration has been of, of worth. And I met this beautiful young girl one day and I was, I just kind of filled up my bike with gas and it was really hot. And I pulled off to the side of a gas station just to sit and, and you know, have some water. And, you know, she came up and she was tiny and she, you know, she wanted to talk to me and she basically said, look, all my life I've wanted to ride a bike, but I'm terrified. You know, I'm absolutely terrified of doing it. And so we kind of, we talked about fear and, and, and you know, we talked about inspiration and, you know, and in the end it's, you know, it was just about breaking that fear down. And, and you know, we the, at the end of the conversation I said to her, look, you're not going to ride a superbike tomorrow that's not where you start. What's the first step you can take? What's one thing you can do right now to bring you closer to your dream? You know, because you don't you don't need to sell everything and, and get on a bike. You don't need to throw everything away, but you do need to take a step. So, you know, it's about identifying what that one step could be. And then when you've got that one under your belt, move on to the next one. So, you know, it's a, it's a gradual process for most people. We talked about the morning where you went to go jogging and you tried to put on your your Lululemon top, which you're right. I have no idea what that is. But, trust but, me. Trust me. You don't want to know. But in any case, you're trying to put that on. That eventually led to you taking the motorcycle trip that you just made reference to now. How? What, what's the leap there from you sitting there in your bathroom to getting on a motorcycle? Um, I As I kind of sat there and, and the words just quit, came into my head once I stopped, you know, kind of crying, um, I, a, a calm came over me and I knew that I had to quit my life. Um, and that actually meant quitting my business. And it's, look, it's, it's really challenging to quit a job at the best of times, let alone to quit your own company. But I knew I had to do it and I had to do it that day or I would have chickened out. So I literally kind of dusted myself off, went back into work. My business partner at the time was on holidays in, in Florence and I called him, and, and to be honest, it probably wasn't one of my most graceful, beautiful moments, but I, I just had to get the words out, and I just said to him, I have to quit, I have to leave, I can't do this anymore. It was probably one long sentence that went on for about two minutes. I said, I'm gone. Um, and after he recovered, and, and it wasn't it wasn't a pretty moment, but after he recovered and, you know, he came back to Australia and we kind of talked about it, we agreed that, that we would find a CEO to take over my role. I was running the operation. And it was a pretty big company by that stage. Um, and uh, so it took six months to make the transition. So we were fortunate enough to find a CEO pretty quickly. We brought her in. I trained her for six months. But in that time, you know, when you've I've kind of made this grand gesture saying I'm going to quit this life, but I had no idea what to do. I knew I had to heal myself, but I didn't know how. And so I kind of looked at all kinds of things. So, you know, do I... Do I, you know, do I climb Kilimanjaro? You know, what what do I do? Do I kind of go ice trekking? You know, all kind of big adventure stuff. And then one night in the middle of the night, literally two words, you go ride. And I sat up at two o'clock in the morning. I said to my husband, I've caught, that's it. That's where my heart is. That's, you know, that's where I'm alive. Go ride. So I woke Robbie, my husband, up and I said, I'm going riding. And he's looking at his watch going, it's two o'clock in the morning. I'm like, no, 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 that's it. I'm going. So literally within six months, I had bought my bike in Vancouver, left my company on the Friday and on the Monday I was in Whistler and uh, getting ready to, to go on a three-month journey on my, on my superbike. What were you hoping to find? What was the ride about? 
You know, I, I you know when I, I stepped on board this beautiful superbike of mine, I had no idea where this journey was going to take me. I mean, literally, I had bought maps um, and in Australia, and I'd kind of every every kind of Saturday, I'd spread them out on the table and I'd look at them and be unbelievably daunted. And then just kind of fold them up very carefully and put them all away because the more I looked at them, the more terrified I became. So I decided that I would just wing it. And so literally the journey was was literally every every night kind of getting getting in, looking at the maps, looking, picking the squiggliest, most intestinal looking roads, knowing that they would be my best best riding roads and plotting a route. But sometimes I get up in the morning and road fires would have closed the road. So so it was literally winging it. From a journey perspective and and from a soul perspective, um, I just went, I guess, in terms of in faith, knowing that if I sat on my bike by myself eight hours a day with kind of nothing to do but be absorbed in in my journey, then somewhere, somehow, you know, kind of the answers would come. Um, The answers to, you know, who I was supposed to be in this world, what I was here to do. um, And... I guess, getting clarity on what was really important for my life going forward. So, yeah, so a bit of a wish and a prayer and a hope, I guess, as I, as I kind of set out. Were you hoping to come up with a, an idea of a business or something that you were going to go into next? Was it looking for, you know, some sort of uh, some sort of way to make a living, in other words, or is it some sort of spiritual change you're after? Um, actually, all of the above. I mean, I, I think I really wanted to, to, to step into, I really wanted to kind of, start to grow spiritually. That had been something that was quite um, off the charts for me. I mean, I had never been a spiritual person. The thought of meditation, I would have rather have cleaned the oven with a toothbrush than, you know, (laughs) sat for five minutes meditating. So, you know, so kind of space, quiet, all of that was just an anathema to me. Um, I didn't like being vulnerable. I wanted to be, you know, I was a a true warrior out there. So kind of the, the spiritual element of the journey started to come in just before I left, you know, where I started to kind of really, really do some deep questioning about what I was supposed to be doing. Um, but at the same time, I kind of figured that the journey would also help me work out what the next step would be in my in my kind of career, in my life. And so I did kind of have expectations that, you know, by the time I kind of switched my bike off for the last time, I'd be really clear on what the next steps would be, you know, what kind of business I'd start, what I'd be doing, Um would I be able to create a, a movement? You know, would I be working with women? And uh, yeah, so I just kind of put it all out there and, and hoped that the answers would come. Um, and some did and some didn't. But, you know, I was I was really good with all of that. I want to go back to your choice of bike, <laughs> the S1000RR. Now, yeah. now, I'm a firm believer that any bike <laughs> is an adventure bike and any bike is can be used for travel. If it's something you love, clearly you love this bike. But, yeah. but it's not really a bike that many people will load up for a trip. No. Um, and, it, and it still makes me laugh. I, you know, I can remember talking to the BMW dealer when I was buying it. And he said, interesting, he said, you know, the words S1000RR and touring and no two words that I've ever seen put together. Um, and he was right. I mean, and, and look, you know, it's, I sat with my husband and, um, you know, and I, I trial ride it. I mean, I've only ever ridden really super bikes or, you know, fast machines. So I've never kind of done an upright position. And I can remember sitting with my husband and, and we went to, we went and we tested, test rode, a, you know, a bunch of bikes, you know, great BMW touring bikes and, you know, a couple of KTMs and, you know, a few other options. 
And um, so we'd spent a couple of days doing it. And um, and he'd seen me kind of looking at the S1000, you know, every time we kind of go into the showroom. And um, he, we sat down and he said, look, you really need a sensible bike. You need an upright bike where you've got a great riding position. You need something with a big fuel tank so, you know, you don't ever have to worry about being caught out. And you need something that can take a lot of gear. He said, that will be the sensible option. I went, yep, that's a sensible option. And he said, but you're never going to take the sensible option, are you? I went, no, I've got to have the S1. <laughs> So, uh, so that was it. So, um, so I decided that you know I would ride this bike because I'd, I'd ridden this bike a lot on the track and I loved it. Um, and I, I kind of realised that you know yes, I would be incredibly limited in the amount of gear that I could take. You know, two tiny SW Motex, a rolly and, and a and a tank bag, and that would be it. And that would just be enough to kind of hold you know snow gear, wet weather gear, you know, cold gear. Um, but I fell in love with this bike from the minute I saw it and, uh, she had my heart and, uh, yeah. So together we did, uh, 11,000 miles in three months. So, um, she has become a tourer. I feel really embarrassed. I mean, sometimes I look at her and I have to apologize to her that she does look like a cart horse instead of the super bike that she is, but, but she handled it really well. Stay with us. We're going to take a short break to thank a couple of sponsors to help bring this episode to you. But when we come back, we're going to talk about packing the bike and a whole lot more. Stay with us. Well, you don't have much time to get your tickets for Overland Expo East coming up November 9th to 11th. And uh, if you don't have your tickets, well, you want to get them now. And remember, to get the tickets, you have to get them online. Drop by their website, overlandexpo.com. And hey, I just noticed on the website that uh, Green Chili Adventure Gear is going to be there. So it's a great time to meet up with the Green Chili crew. They've got tons and tons of exhibitors. If you go to their website and, and look at what they've got going on. By the way, it's in Asheville, North Carolina at the Rebranch. Overland Expo has a, a knack for doing things in a grand style because this Rebranch facility looks incredible, as does their venue on in the West. They've got um, a huge list of what's going on at Overland Expo East. I mean, if you go to their website and you click on the schedule link, it's like four long pages of planned activities. Everything from overloaded overland, which is tips for motorcycle packing, to classes on electricity, electrical work, weather forecasting, BMW electrics, tire changing, how to stretch your adventure, the pannier size kitchen, which is how to pack for cooking on the road, off-road riding classes, they got border crossing classes, and that one is actually with Pete Sweetser, who was on our show here a few weeks back. They've even got things for the kids. They've got roundtable talks on all the continents, about traveling all the continents. They've just got loads of presentations. Um, and they've got people and companies there showing what they use for overlanding and what they're selling for overlanding. Just all aspects of overlanding. So much going on. It's a great way to see what other people are using for overlanding or for riding. And uh, also learn what other travelers have learned on the road. So don't miss your chance. Drop by their website, www.overlandexpo.com. And be sure to mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Anytime you're dealing with Overland Expo or anybody, even when you go, tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Again, the website, www.overlandexpo.com. You know, we've talked before about sort of skimping on things for adventure. I mean, there's all kinds of things you can do to bodge things. You can use a, you know, I wouldn't say a bungee cord, but you might want to wire something up or zip tie something that should be otherwise done. But there are some areas on the bike that you do not want to chintz. And when it comes to foot pegs, that is definitely one. You do not want 
cheap foot pegs because it's your main connection between you and the bike. Not only that, every time you stand up on them, you're putting all your weight and faith into these. You certainly wouldn't want to have one let go. But you want a peg that is going to hold your foot in place. You want one that's designed properly so that when you tilt your foot down to grab the brake lever or slip underneath the, the shifter lever, that it is proportioned properly. And the inexpensive pegs could be widened on both sides, which would change the geometry of your foot. Let me just leave it at that. And basically make shifting and braking completely different than what it's supposed supposed to be and even hinder your ride. You want pegs that are extremely tough, um, very durable, so that when you drop your bike, you know your peg gets slammed. You want to know that when you pick your bike back up, you don't have to bother looking at your peg to see if you've damaged it or broken it. You want something that's tough. I'll tell you where to go. It's the pegs I use, IMS Products. www.imsproducts.com. They've got a complete line of foot pegs for adventure riders like you and I. And anytime you're dealing with them, please throw our name in there. Let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Again, www.imsproducts.com. When you're setting out on this trip, did you plan on on 11,000 miles in three months? No, you know what? I had no real concept of, of where this journey would take me. And um, and I had no, and I, I literally thought that I would ride until the answers came or the snow came, whatever came first. Um, snow won, snow beat me, snow beat me in. But I just figured I would just get on and ride and, and just keep heading. You know, for me, I, I started in British Columbia. And so I just kind of crossed the border and, and headed into, so Washington, Oregon, down to California, and then across Colorado, Utah, and then Wyoming and Montana, a big circle. And I just figured that the circle would be as long as it needed to be and until I was ready to come home. And, and that was the beauty of it, because I literally made up every day as I went along. There was no planning, no organizing. And, um, you know, for someone that's been very goal orientated and needed, you know, needed marks in the sand, uh, it was incredibly liberating just to get on this bike and just, you know, go, you know, literally just, you know, look at look at a signpost and go, what do we think? Left or right? Okay, let's go left. Let's see where that takes us. So, yeah, it was amazing. And although you're you're an experienced rider at the point that you left on this bike, you weren't an experienced motorcycle traveler. No, no, that, that, the motorcycle traveler were two words that I'd never kind of entered my consciousness. So no, and I'd never done, you know, I mean, I've done a lot, I've spent a lot of time on a bike, but certainly not eight hours a day on a super bike with my legs kind of wrapped up looking like a pretzel. So, um, so yeah, it was a whole new experience apart from anything else, getting my body used to, to that kind of, that kind of riding. I mean, at long, they're long days on a super bike. So, um, so I guess I could, could technically be called an adventure bike rider because um, it was quite an adventure riding a superbike for that amount of time every day. And how did you find packing your bike up? I understand you had a bit of trouble at the beginning. Oh, I have no concept. I mean, I have significant challenges. I'm, I'm navigationally challenged, which is not a good thing to be when you're kind of on the road by yourself. And just kind of managing the gear, I mean, it just seemed to be ridiculous. I mean, and, and you know, full transparency, I, you know, I think when you're on, on um, you know, on a superbike for that amount of time during the day, you know, you have to have a few luxuries. And for me, that was pretty much kind of staying. I didn't, I didn't camp. I had no room for camping gear. So I didn't, I didn't camp. I, I stayed in, you know, kind of hotels or Airbnbs or couch surfed or, you know, wherever I could. 
So, you know, so I kind of had, you know, I did still have the luxuries of life. It wasn't as if I was, you know, wandering through Mongolia with a screwdriver and a, and a vegan bar. But but kind of trying to manage the the gear of all of this stuff and just kind of the, just the loading it on every day. I mean, it actually got to the point where, you know, I'd load it and then two minutes down the road, you know, my, my, the rolly kind of come off or hit me in the back. And so it did take quite a lot of um Quite a lot of practice to get the gearing, the whole gearing, you know, gearing and ungearing sorted out. But in the end, I kind of looked at it as if it was like a Zen practice. So I, I for the first few days, I fought it, and then slowly, slowly became a beautiful Zen practice. Left FW Motec goes on, right SW Motec goes on, Rolly goes on, strap goes over. So, uh, so yeah, it was uh, it was quite the process, but you know, eventually I got it under control. Your journey was filled with meeting people as you went along, um, and. Um they sort of they sort of gave you perspective, didn't they? Or they, they certain interactions change your life. Can you talk about a few of those? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it it was the biggest lesson that I learned on this journey overall, and that is the power of connection. Um, you know, my day to day life. I, I, it's not that I was rude, but I, you know, I was so busy, you know, kind of moving from you know one task to the next, and you know, my head down, and never really making connection with the strangers that crossed my path every day. And um, I learned really, really early on the, the, the absolute joy that I received, you know, particularly when I was on my own day in, day out, the joy that I received from, from the connections that I made every single day, and they would be huge. I mean, I think, again, that's one of the beauties of being a solo traveler. If I was traveling with someone else on a bike, you get left alone. People kind of think, oh, yeah, they're fine. They're in their own world. But, you know, kind of a wild Australian woman on a British Columbian motorbike, you know, at the, you know, in Telluride, you know, instantly, whether it's a gas station or a coffee shop or a parking lot, people come from nowhere and they want to talk to you. And, um, and they're, they're incredible. Not only do they want to talk to you, but they want to share their stories with you. Uh, and I was unbelievably honoured to, to spend, you know, sometimes five minutes, sometimes it'd be two hours that, you know, that I would spend with people while they would tell me their stories and and we would talk about life and we would share our journeys and, and they would talk about their fears and their, you know, I mean, sometimes there was too much information. There was too much sharing. Um, there's only so much that you could kind of take on board. And, and I was really staggered by the openness of people. But I guess they felt safe telling me things. I mean, I, I'm, you know, kind of a wanderer. I'm, I'm not going to be able to, you know, tell the town their stories. But but it was just such an incredible experience for me to be in a position where people would come, we would have these incredible connections that literally changed my life where, you know, I learned to be uh, vulnerable. Uh, you know, I kind of, I'd been someone that never wanted to ask for help, never needed help from anybody. Um, I mean, it's a great story on vulnerability. This was probably my, one of my biggest lessons for North American riders, um, this won't mean anything. For Australian riders, we when we fill up the air in our tyres, we have a very sophisticated system. We just we go to a you know an air pump, we put the valve on it, we dial in the amount of air that we want, and it fills it up automatically. Beautiful, seamless. I had no idea that that's not what happens in North America. Number one, you've got to pay for air in most places, which shocked me. And number two you, you know, trying to kind of maneuver, trying to maneuver this valve on. So I'd spent about 
the first time I put air in the tyres of my bike, I'd spent about 10 minutes trying to do it. And there'd been a guy um, in his pickup truck in a gas station just kind of watching me. And he kind of wandered over and he was, you know, real kind of drawl, you know, which is, you know, say, little lady, do you need a help here? Um, and I was mortified. I'd been on my back, on my side, on my arm, on my left. And I kind of looked at him and I went, no, it's cool. Thank you. No, I've got this. I've got this. So he kind of smirked a little and, and kind of wandered off, um, started filling up his truck. And, and fortunately for me, it takes a long time to fill a truck. By this stage, both of my tyres were completely flat. And uh, he wandered over and, and, you know, no, he didn't want – I wandered over to him and I just said, look, you know, okay, here's the deal. I actually do need a hand. I've got no idea what I'm doing. So bless him, he, you know, he, he didn't laugh at my face. So he, he kind of wandered over with me and he kind of looked at what I was doing. He said, where's your tire pressure gauge? And I said, my what? He said, you have to have a tire pressure gauge. How do you know what you're doing here without a tire pressure gauge? You know, he said, how long have you been riding this bike? And it's like, well, you know, just a couple of days, but come with me. So we went into the shop. He bought me a tire pressure gauge. He showed me how to use it, filled up my tires, and off I went. And, you know, bless him, he just said to me, no, you make sure you keep that tire pressure gauge real close now, little lady. And and I knew that I would, number one, because I was going to need someone else's help the next time I did it. But number two, just to remind me that it's safe to be vulnerable. It's it's safe to ask for help. Um, and not only that, when you're vulnerable, when you allow yourself to be vulnerable, you actually give someone an incredible gift as well. Um he, in, in it being able to help me um, and teach me something new, I'd actually given him a gift. So, you know, it was those kind of learning experiences that I had literally three or four times a day that really kind of helped me grow on my journey. That's an interesting point. I, I think that is a tough one. And this one that also took me a long time to learn as well is that you're when you're refusing something from someone, quite often you're actually taking something away from them yeah. that they would otherwise have. Did it need to be a motorcycle for you? Could it have been a car? Oh, no, no. No, I don't, um, I don't mean for your choice, because I know I, I can hear in your voice. I mean, you, you're passionate about motorcycling, but I mean, would it have been the same trip with a car? Uh, no, no. Um, I don't think so. I mean, it's. I think the bike gives you, gave me the connectivity. That, that was number one. Number two, you know, kind of hours in my helmet, was really important and, and you try to explain to people that you know kind of you I mean although you do have hours in your helmet frankly you're a little bit busy um you know particularly when you're navigating you know ice and snow and sleet and um and as I said when you're navigationally challenged and you know you have to make up you know really quick decisions about is it left or right but no I think you know for me you know the uh, an important part of the soothing was being on my bike um, was being able to breathe and, and you know, and, and smell everything around me. And I was in incredibly beautiful areas. You know, I was in, I was in you know, Death Valley deserts at 48 degrees Celsius, um, which is, I think, about 116, 117. You know, so to experience all of those conditions, so the heat, being in areas, coming over mountain passes in Wyoming where, you know, I was snowed on, um, the smell of the pine forests, the... the the gratefulness that you feel when you've been frozen for, you know, for four hours and the sun slowly comes out, you get that, just that tiny beam of, of warmth on your shoulder where the sun just hits it. You know, all of those just kind of contributed to me um, to kind of make this journey just breathtakingly incredible. 
did anything change for you as far as throughout this journey in the way that you felt about the motorcycle? I don't mean the bike in particular. I mean about the ride. Um, good question. I, I expected this ride to give me answers. Um, and I really expected at the end of the ride, as, as I said, I would get off this bike, I would switch her off. And, and, and she has a name, by the way. Her name is Voodoo um, because she's dark and mysterious and, and she would bite me um, if I didn't pay attention. So I really expect – and she she became a, you know, a complete entity. It was like, you know, when I talk about it, I talk about us, you know, and it's it's the two of us doing this journey together. But I, I really expected when I switched Voodoo off for the last time that I would have all of the answers and, and I didn't. I didn't know what the next step would be. I didn't know what I would be doing next. I didn't know how I was going to be contributing in this world. Um, and slowly towards the end of the journey, at the, at the beginning of the journey when the answers don't come, you kind of think to yourself, oh, that's cool, i got three months or, you know, however long it's going to take. It'll come. It'll come. You know, and then you get to two months and you go, okay, still not coming. It'll be there. I've still got another two months. And then you get a month out and you go, what the hell? You know, what am I going to do? And I realized that kind of in that last six weeks that I had to let go of the need for answers. And that was a huge shift for me. Um, you know, as I said, kind of being a goal orientated, no needing to know what the next step was. I had no idea. Um, and that within itself, I think, was one of the biggest lessons that I got on being in the bike is that, that I it's about being clear on what you want. It's about kind of putting it out there. And then it's about kind of surrendering to, you know, how it actually eventuates. And the answers did come. They didn't come then, but they did come. But the biggest lesson for me on that journey was learning to let go of the need to know um, and kind of surrendering to the unknown because, you know, when you surrender to the unknown and that journey was all about surrendering to the unknown, things that you couldn't possibly have envisaged come your way. And I think that was a really important lesson for me if you – plan to the nth degree, you'll get what you always plan for. But when you kind of throw it up in the air and you go, okay, let's see what comes next. Stuff that you couldn't have envisaged, you know, that's kind of way out of your scheme of, of thought kind of gets, you get exposed to that. And things happened to me on this journey that I would never have imagined, um, couldn't possibly have foreseen and couldn't dream, have dreamed about. But they happen when I let go of the need to control and the need to know the answers. Being open, in other words, you know, when someone shows up, you you take the time to sit and talk with them and absolutely. and see where it goes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and again, you know, sometimes I'd I'd be on my bike and I'd be like, okay, this is where I'm going to be today, and it's going to be a long ride, of, you know, 500 kilometers. Um, so I need to get away early, and then I get to it. But I always started every day at a coffee shop, and I started every day literally with a journal where I wrote in my journal firstly the things that I was really grateful for, and you know, that just kind of helped frame my day. Um, but then someone would talk to me in a coffee shop and I'd be looking at my watch thinking, I can let go of this and be on time or I can just I can just close my journal and just sit with this person and see where it takes me. And, you know, I, one of one of my favorite lessons was um, in Cody, Wyoming, which is Cody, and I'm a vegan. So for a vegan, it's 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 the vegan's worst nightmare. It's a serious wild west town, gorgeous, but their their definition of green is a pickle. So I'd had a couple of interesting days in Cody, and I'd loved it, but it was time, and I had a big day. I was coming back in out through Yosemite, got heading back towards Montana, 
Um, I had a big day planned, but but I decided to you know grab a coffee first. And and a few days earlier in in Jackson, someone had taught me the concept of buying a coffee forward. And um, I was standing in a, a coffee queue having a chat to, to a guy in, you know, ahead of me in the line. And as we came to the top of the queue, he said to me, what are you drinking? He said, I do this thing called buying a coffee forward. I, I buy a coffee for someone and your only requirement is to keep the tradition alive. So, which was lovely. And I, and I really fell in love with that. Although I learned really quickly to pick my audience, um, because the first time I tried to do that the next day, I, I picked a very European person who said to me, I don't need your charity. I can buy my own coffee. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, so, but I have to say in kind of two and a bit years, that's the only refusal I've ever had, but it was my first one. So I'm standing in a coffee queue in, in, in Cody, Wyoming. There's a beautiful gentleman standing behind me, you know, an elderly gentleman all lined and wrinkled and, and just with a beautiful twinkle in his eye. And you know, as we got to the, the top of the queue, I just said to him, you know, may I buy your coffee? I explained what I was doing and he was a little taken aback, but he accepted my offer and and this was supposed to be a quick coffee stop, but I ended up sitting in the sun with him for two hours, you know, kind of talking about life and talking about experiences and, and he was just divine. He His name was is Bob and he said, well, you know, you can call me Grandpa Bob. He said, you know what, I'm 87, but please don't tell anyone. The town thinks I'm only 82. I don't want them to know you know, how old I really am. And he told me his life story. He'd been married to his beautiful bride for 60 years. He was hoping to get another 20 years with her. Um, he'd had a stroke down the left-hand side. He'd lost mobility, he'd lost his eyesight, you know, a bunch of things had happened to him. But he was just the most incredible, beautiful soul. And, and two hours later, his beautiful bride came to collect him and she kind of twicked him on the cheek and she said, Robert, you know, you're 87 years of age and you're still flirting with the girls. <laughs> But he, you know, she kind of helped him up and, and he gave me a big hug and, um, and as we said goodbye and then he turned to me and he said, you know what, life is about love. It's about loving the people that we can, telling them that we love them. It's about being kind and it's about being grateful for everything we have in this world. No matter whatever it is that we've been given, it's about being grateful for. You know, and, and as they kind of, you know, got into the car and, and wandered off, you know, they were two of the most incredibly breathtaking hours of my life. And I would have missed that. You know, if I'd been on a rush to get on my bike and get to my destination, I would have missed one of the most beautiful connections of my whole trip and one of the most powerful learning experiences that I had. So, so yeah, so it, it really was about being open and about going, let's just see where this takes me. Have you changed that that sort of intense drive that you've always had, or at least up until then, you know, with, with business? I mean, you, as an executive, you have to be highly driven, and it's certainly having your own business, you have to be highly driven, in particular if you want it to grow very large. Have you changed that? Has your personality actually changed? You know, no, it hasn't. It's, but it, I, I guess the thing is now that the the behaviors that I used to exhibit, so which you do have to be if you're in business. I mean, you're absolutely right. There are times where you have to make tough decisions and you, you know, you have to be strong and you have to be relatively fearless. I think the thing is now that I I they are behaviors that I choose. They're not my default behaviors. So for example, you know, I kind of I I am a bit of a warrior. And there are still times in business where I need to be a warrior, where my business demands that. But that's a choice that I make for that particular incident rather than it being my default position on everything. Um, and I guess the thing is that I've actually become better, not 
not good, but better at catching myself now. So when I see that drive, when I see that I, you know, that fanatical need to push, or you know, I'm doing things to the point of excluding, you know, other things that are important in my life, I can catch myself now. Not all the time, but but more times than not. And in that catching, I can do something different. So uh, so I guess that's kind of how it's it's you know how it's kind of evolved um, as a result of the journey. You know, often people go out on, on trips and they find that, in particular on a long trip, they find that they um, they sort of change somewhat. They Their personality changes. They see the world differently. And when they come back, they have a little trouble relating to their friends and family because they expect to see that old you, in other words, yeah. when you come back. How yeah. do you deal with that? I mean, in, in particular, in, in your position, you were in a position where um, a lot of people were looking at you, and all of a sudden you come back, and now you're this new person that seems to have changed your personality. What's their response, and how do you deal with that? Yeah, look, it is really tough, actually. Um, you know, and I, I, you know, particularly, you know, when you're married. I mean, I've been married for you know thirty odd years, so a long time. So. You know, it's uh, when you come back, the kind of integration process is really difficult. And I think, you know, particularly if you've changed, and, and I did change significantly, um, there's no two ways about it. And and I think for those around you, it's, it is really hard. But I guess, you know, for me in terms of particularly the life lessons that I learned that I wanted to share with, you know, particularly with my friends and, and my family, I had to be really kind of conscious of the fact that, you know, Instead of telling, it was about showing. So instead of saying, wow, you know, I learned to be, you know, gratitude has just made such a difference in my life and, you know, be fabulous for you to, to kind of, you know, have a gratitude practice every day, you know, that's just never going to fly. So it's about actually, for me, it was about actually living, you know, living the lessons and showing rather than teaching and, and you know, and, and allowing people to kind of come to me so going, you know, and saying things like, well, you know, you just seem so much more relaxed about the world now, you know, and, and then being able to explore those kind of conversations that way. I think the thing is that, you know, particularly in business, I think if you've had, you know, if you've kind of had an opportunity to find a different level of fulfillment, one of the fears that I had would, was that it would actually take my edge away, you know, when you're kind of living in that in that pointy edge, particularly as an entrepreneur with a, with a business. But it doesn't, it actually makes you even better. You know, as I said, because you, you know, you use the skills when you need to, but, you know, you become far more relaxed and, or, you know, I certainly did, you know, far more relaxed, hopefully more open, um, hopefully, you know, created less stress for those around me. But yeah, the integration process takes some time and, and you know, I, I was, again, very fortunate that I've got, you know, pretty kind of understanding husband and family and, and I mean, and they still laugh at me, you know, because they still think I'm a little kind of woo-woo. Um that, you know, be like, oh, that's the spiritual mom. We forgot we had her. Um, you know. So they're sarcastic. <laughs> oh, they're very cheeky. I'm cheeky from a distance. They only normally say that when I'm in another country. So, um, but yeah, and I, and I think it's an evolutionary process for, for, you know, for all of us. And, you know, it's, I know the kind of the lessons that I've learned through, you know, not Hopefully, I mean, I, hopefully that they would say that I didn't, but, you know, hopefully not ramming it down, particularly my family's throat, but just kind of, you know, being a really good example of the life that I want to live um, helps create curiosity and interest so that other people kind of want to learn a little bit more. And, you know, hopefully I can give them a hand as well. 
sort of keep this this new um, sort of outlook on life? Are you going to have to go on other trips? Oh, I have. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I repeated the trip again. I, I kind of, and it was really interesting. So I, I kind of did the the first trip and um, and you know came back to Australia and you know tried to to decide what it was that I was supposed to do in this world. And and again, kind of, it was hard because I, as I said, I did expect that I would have the answers and I didn't. So you kind of come back and I wandered around for a little bit and you know just trying to kind of sort things out. Um, and then. Um, and then I decided that it would be a really good idea to write a book. And, and that went really badly because I just couldn't get my head around it. And funnily, interestingly enough, I, um, I've i never, I've, you know, kind of come off on a track, but never had an accident on the road of, you know, kind of all of these years of road riding. And um, my, I had an 899 Ducati that a truck decided to separate from me. And I broke my arm really badly, arm, collarbone, ribs, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, but the, the, the impact of that actually meant that I stopped writing and I stopped doing anything and I spent some time just kind of reflecting and getting my arm right because I was due to come back and, and pick up Voodoo and write her again. So I did take another kind of couple of months and, and wrote her the following summer. And that's really when things started to consolidate. The lessons that I thought that I'd learnt the first trip, that I kind of, I thought, yeah, I've got this nailed, um, really consolidated themselves on the second trip. But the, the trick from then on is then, you know, how do you how do you make sure that you continue to live those in your average, you know, in your in your day to day life and not necessarily need that level of solitude to to be able to implement them. So that's actually been tricky and, and you know, for me it's about actually putting structure in place in my day so that, you know, so that I do practice gratitude I do write my journal I do put meditation I do start my day with meditation you know so I I get up really early I I meditate I go for a run I come back I write my journal I practice gratitude and then my day is kind of set you know so it's it's about actually putting structure and framework I guess in place to help you remember the values and the lessons that you learned you sort of have to change your, your um, I, I guess your core beliefs, don't you? I mean, to really make a permanent change, because otherwise you're just sort of putting on an act, I guess. So, um, yeah. Unless you change those core beliefs, those things that make you instantly respond one way or another, unless those are changed, you're probably going to go right back to what you were before. Yeah, you know, and that's that's a really important point because I think, you know, before I went on my trip, you know, my values, if someone, you know, my core values were, you know, it's about they were very masculine. So, you know, so I was competitive, I was driven, I was focused, I was determined. Um, and I watched those change um, over the course of this journey. I, I was in the Grand Canyon. I remember kind of walking, I decided to do a, you know, kind of a 12-hour hike down into the Grand Canyon and back up. And um, and in that kind of that 12 hours of walking, you know, it suddenly dawned on me how much my personal values had changed. And and I'd been able to kind of step into the some of the values that I'd really avoided, you know, more of the feminine values. But I suddenly realized that my values had become things like, you know, connectivity, flexibility, um, adventure, growth and learning. And, and they were values that were so far apart from where I'd been. And, and, you know, your point is incredibly important because when you suddenly realize that those values are changing, then you have to do something. And I try and do something every day that honors those values so that I do keep them alive and, and I don't go back to the values that, that actually no longer serve me. 
some people may take issue with your description of masculine and, and feminine <laughs> values there. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with that either, but <laughs> but you, you mentioned a book a few minutes ago. You did write a book. You, you wrote the book Riding Raw. That book is about the adventure. What is, like, I mean, I know we've read the book, but just sort of briefly tell what that book is about. Um, yeah, eventually I did write the book, but, you know, it was kind of after the second trip. Um, you know, and I, and I wasn't ready to write it the first time, as I said, because, I, you know, the lessons just weren't, they weren't engraved in me well enough. Yeah, so the book is Writing Raw. It's the journey from empty to full. And I guess it's probably encapsulates most of the things that we've talked about today. So it is literally, you know, on the outside looking um, like my life was a million bucks. I mean, it's just having all the 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 external criteria of success, having ticked all of those off and then waking up and going, wow, but you know what, is that enough? And it's literally the journey to finding fulfillment, um, to finding, you know, letting go of head success. And and look, let, you know, I, I need to be really clear, there's nothing wrong with head success. There is nothing wrong with wanting to have a great career and being financially stable and, you know, creating a lifestyle that enables you to do crazy wild things. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that, you know, I, I'm still in that space. The challenge is when that defines us. And unfortunately for me, all of those things defined me. They were my evaluation and my measurements of and criteria of success. So head success is great so long as it doesn't define us. But if you're looking for true fulfillment, it's about heart success. So it's about learning to connect with people. It's about learning to connect with yourself about really kind of understanding what your purpose is here on this world um, and the person that you were supposed to be, not the person that you that you thought you were. So, and that's that's really the the you know, kind of the backstory behind the book. And it's what happened was I, I kept a blog every day for, you know, kind of the hundreds of friends and relatives. So it stopped me having to email them every day. So I would blog for a couple of hours every day. But as I mentioned, I actually journaled it. And the blog was kind of more of the technical stuff, albeit leaving out, you know, some of the scary stuff that happened, like, you know, nearly being hit by trucks and moose and all of that kind of stuff, because that would have just sent them into hyperspace. And then my journal was about my personal growth, about the lessons that I was learning and not getting and getting and having to, re, you know, get 20 times because I didn't get them the first time. And then the book is literally then a combination of that. So it's, it is a day-by-day step through the journey, um, the, the technical journey or the physical journey, but also then the emotional, spiritual journey that that kind of went with that on a day-to-day basis um and how i managed to come out the end and and still be unscathed and is now is is motorcycling a bigger part of your life because of all of this um look i think it's just it's you know you cut me and i bleed you know you know aviation fuel and 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 motorcycle fuel you know those two parts of my uh, you know the two parts of my life that you know that are are just a, a constant you know, my life is riding a bike. It, it, I don't want to say it defines me because I don't want to be defined as a motorcycle rider per se, but it is my happy place. You know, I get on this bike, I kick her over, um, and there's just a connection that gives me incredible joy. And, you know, whether that's on a track or, or whether that's, you know, trying to get voodoo through snow or through sand or through gravel or, you know, it is it is the place where I am literally happiest. I don't think about anything else but being on that bike. Yeah, so it's kind of it's the place that gives me my most joy. Well, we're running out of time here, but before I let you go, I'd like to find out what your top tips are for others that you've learned from these trips. Okay, so a bunch of tips. 
Let's talk motorcycle. Um, BMW S1000RRs don't like gravel, don't like sand, don't like snow, but <laughs> they'll do it. Um, okay. So, so yeah, I've had uh, I had a I had to go into Joshua Tree, and um, I rang them and said, "What's the entrance up into this you know place I was staying?" They said, "Oh, it's fine. We get bikes up here all the time." And I went, mm, "Not like this." They said, "No, no, no, you'll be fine." And I got there, and it was uh, about four miles of sand, uphill. Nice. So yeah, no, but I spent two days then worrying about how I was going to get it out. So BMW S1000RRs can go anywhere, and they make an incredible touring bike as long as you have a really, really straight back. Um, I guess the lessons are you don't need you don't need to to quit your life to be able to change your life. But having said that, if you get the opportunity to to take an adventure like this. Those lessons come through so thick and so fast, and it's and it's a whirlwind. But wow, isn't that what life is supposed to be? You know, aren't we supposed to be out there, kind of hanging by our fingernails and not knowing what's coming next? Because that's you know that's where incredible adrenaline comes from, and with that adrenaline comes, you know, so much learning about ourselves. Um, and this bike, this bike journey taught me more about myself in three months than you know, kind of fifty odd years had taught me. So it was just incredible. Um, and go where the bike takes you. You know, surrender to the unknown. Be really, really open to everything that comes your way. Um, and see it as a gift, whether it's a flat tire or snow or whatever. Whatever comes your way is meant to come your way. And particularly when we're on a journey, when you see it as a gift, man, everything just kind of opens up. And then thirdly, connect. The greatest joy that I have is connecting with um, with the people that I met on this journey, um, and they taught me again more about myself than I would ever have learned any other way. And when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, when we allow ourselves to be open, we give a gift back to them as well. So that's probably my top tips. Sue, great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jim. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Sue Hollis, and you can find out more about Sue at her website, www.suehollis.com. And her book about this journey that we've been talking about today is called Riding Raw, A Journey from Empty to Full. And the book is available through Amazon, and that link is in our show notes. I just want to remind you that this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and MotoBreeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about 
wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, of course, the listener. Thank you very much for listening. If you like what we're doing and you want to help support the show, we built it on a model of advertising and listener support. So you can drop by the website. Anything uh, $10 or more will get you a sticker sent back at you for your pannier, your toolbox, your, your motorcycle, anywhere. Um, anything $50 or more gets you a mention on our Raw show. And we've also signed up for Patreon for um, a monthly support system. And, and that would be great. If you, you would go and consider doing that anyway, just a small amount per person makes a huge difference for us here at Adventure Rider Radio. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike, I guess. Oh, wait, one more thing before I go. I, I just want to mention that there's uh, show notes to check out for this episode, as there is for all of them. Uh, go have a look, because there's links in there, and there's other things in there that you may want to find at the website. The website, www.adventureriderradio.com. My name's Jim Martin. Get out there and ride your bike. See you next week. Hi, this is Tom Metema with the Rally for Rangers Foundation, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Hey!